everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, where I have been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety in 2011. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And today's guest is Taylor. At two years alcohol-free, Taylor's journey has helped her to connect the dots and realize that her recovery encompasses many aspects of her life. So Taylor shares her story today as an act of both service and gratitude, and let's meet this amazing woman and learn more about her. Taylor, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, Jean. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so glad to have you. It's just always amazing to me that I ever felt so alone when there's just so many amazing people out there who have, you know, learned lessons and are happy to connect and share them. So thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. It was um it was kind of an epiphany that I had this spring at one point in my journey that I'll share a little bit about that it became kind of important for me to start being a little bit more um like recovering out loud. I think we hear that phrase in our circles. So yeah. yeah, thank you for giving me a space to share it. Oh, my pleasure. Well, tell us your story. Let's get to know you. Okay, sounds good. Um, so I'm I'm 46 years old. I'll be 47 at the end of this year, actually, um, just kind of logistically about me. I live in Minnesota. I'm in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. So for anyone listening that's in this area, that's kind of where I am geographically. Um, I'm married, although um, not my first marriage. I'm in my second marriage. I was married at 19. I was divorced in my early 30s. Um, I have three living daughters and a stepdaughter and um, and a husband that I love very much who has been in my life for a little over 10 years, and we've been married for eight. So that's logistically kind of some background. Um, so I wrote up a little bit of um, background, and then maybe we can go into some conversation. Um, I started my journey towards sobriety and recovery about six years ago. I think it was about eight years ago that I knew that my drinking had become problematic um, through some really good self-help work. I think I've been able to identify fairly deep patterns of fear of rejection and not being good enough. And those kinds of things really fed into perfectionism and overworking myself and not coping very effectively and eventually turning to things like food and alcohol and, and work to kind of soothe myself. I think that certain events or traumas, and I, I struggle with that word because I think everyone kind of has their own litmus for what a trauma is, but I, I think it's different for everyone. Um, and I think that there were things that I just, I didn't bounce back from very effectively and, and didn't cope very well with. Um, so for me, um, throughout my life, I think the things that have sort of set the table for a lot of this are things like a long struggle with my weight, um, a botched overdose when I was 17, um, my parents divorced when I was 18. I lost a set of in- infant twins at birth when I was 19. Um, I didn't finish college in my 20s, which was something I really carried a lot of shame about for a long time and kind of struggled with if I was good enough in my career path or not. Um, my own divorce in 2004, followed by a period of time in 2006 where life really started to feel like it was falling apart. My mom had been diagnosed with um, breast cancer and she passed away that year. Her parents both died that year. My dog died that year. My sisters moved out of state that year. I had a relationship that ended that year. I just kind of felt like I was dying inside that year. And that's really when I think 
my drinking had its first uptick in terms of problematic drinking, um, drinking that I wasn't supposed to be doing anyway because I had had gastric bypass surgery. And as a person who usually drank until she was the drunkest girl at the party, um, I shouldn't have been going down that path to begin with. And at the time, it just felt like a really classy, grown-up, glamorous, although poor choice of coping skills. Um, My next relationship started just a few months after all of that chaos kind of happened, um, which was with my my now husband, his name is Ron. And he is the most fun guy at the party. He's a very social drinker. He loves his beer. Coincidentally or not, he is an adult child of an alcoholic. Um, All of the sadness that I had been working through All of that chaos that happened in that um, couple of years before, um, it just kind of got put on a shelf. And this handsome guy scooped me up into his life and brought all kinds of joy and happiness back to mine and endless drinking opportunities. Uh, The consummate enabler, I think, it only took a few short years, maybe three, until problems really began to unravel with my drinking. Um, We have four daughters between the two of us. Um, at that time that our relationship kicked off and we eventually got married with three teenage daughters and then a middle, um, not a middle schooler, a grade schooler at the time. And, and we spent a lot of our time remodeling a home that we had bought. I had a really demanding corporate job um, and a very intense desire to take care of others, help, fix, <laughs> um, kind of a quintessential, you know, be a good mom while I worked many more than 40 hours per week in my home office in between business trips. I cleaned, I decorated, I put dinner on the table every night. I hosted holidays. I was present for my kids' activities. I just generally generally worked really hard to be kind of everything to everyone and mm-hmm. feeling like that's what was expected, probably an expectation I put on myself. Um, and as much as possible, Things like trips to the gym and the nail salon and the hair salon to make sure I kept up a really good appearance. Although when I look back at pictures, tired eyes, tired skin, um, bloated. I kept up that mix of um, drinking or kind of a mix of reasons for my drinking. I think escaping the chaos and the intense overwhelm and pressure that I felt in my life. Um, kind of a general discontent because I couldn't seem to keep up with this idea. It was almost like an enigma in my head of who I thought I was supposed to be. Um, No one ever, now that I can see clearly, no one had an idea set for me, but I had a very kind of unrealistic idea of who and what I thought I was supposed to be doing all of the time and for myself and for others. Um, but I also was, you know, drinking to have fun with my husband. Um, he really is a, he's a great party guy. And that was kind of a, a very a common part of our relationship. So we fed off of each other a lot, I think. Um, he can be a pretty normal drinker. I ribbed him along to always just have one more. I kind of never wanted to let the party end um, or let the, let the evening end. And that was sort of okay, not completely okay, but sort of okay until I stopped drinking beer and I switched to wine and vodka. And I did that because I was gaining weight with all the beer. (laughs) Um, And pretty soon, well, I'll pause there.
when I switched to wine and vodka, because I thought that beer was making me fat, I drink wine and vodka in pretty much the same volume as I drink beer. So for some perspective on how that might impact someone that has had gastric bypass surgery, especially, but really anyone, that was a significant thing. Um, so I remember him begging me to like slow down and, and me pushing him away and just kind of wanting to numb away the stress of my day. So there was this mix of drinking to have fun. And as the drinking went on, kind of drinking just to numb out, I was just stressed. It was like I created such a perfect idea of who I was supposed to be. And probably the more I drank, the harder it became to achieve that, right? Um, I eventually just got to a point where, you know, we would have a drink together at night. And then I would sit on the deck with, like, wine and cigarettes. And that's the only time I ever smoked was when I was drinking. Um, which felt really inauthentic as time went on because I also was like at the gym and, you know, trying to be a really good mom. And it felt really like a double life at times. Um, Next mornings, I think all of your listeners will relate to just all the shame and regret and guilt, Um, you know, apart from the hangovers, just like feeling so bad about, you know, God, that's not who I want to be. Right. Um, and I cured it with like exercise and eat healthy food and drink lots of water. And that just sort of fed this feeling inside of me that I wasn't being very authentic. It felt very disingenuous, um, to be trying to be healthy. And the more I tried to be healthy to kind of counteract this icky lifestyle I had at night, the more people are like, Oh, good job. You, you know, you look great. Or, you know, you're, you're doing so many great things. And I was like, Oh, if you only knew, um, it was productive people, I think early in the mornings, just because I was fearful of slipping up in life at work or anywhere. And so it was like the worse I felt in the morning, the more I was like, Oh my gosh, I have to get up and get going and like make sure I'm on today. Um, so it's kind of a weird, weird, process to go through um and then the demise just kind of creeped in you know that it's progressive right so it just got worse and worse and I had conflicts with the kids sometimes you know I I I started not being able to show up for them the way I wanted to you know there were things like you know I would open a bottle of wine and then at nine o'clock one of the kids would say oh I need to get tag board for a project tomorrow do I drink and drive? Do we not do the project? <laughs> like, what's the solution? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, and my husband was always like, you can't drive. You've, you've been drinking. And I was like, I can't not be there for my kids. It, it was really those kind of, kinds of, like, they're not huge things. Like, I didn't get a DWI and I didn't lose my job. And, you know, nothing like that happened. But, like, I, I prided myself. I took a lot of pride in being a great mom. And so when things like that would happen, I felt so bad. Um, Or things like not having dinner on the table because I drank a bottle of wine and I just was like, okay, let's have mac and cheese instead. I actually am a good cook. and My kids were used to having kind of a certain life. And it wasn't that we had a horrible life when I was drinking. It's just not kind of the way they had been raised. And so their perception was like, what the heck is going on here? Um, So for me, it was like, Eight years ago, I would say that I really, some significant things happened. I got married 
And at my wedding reception, my dad came to the head table and he leaned over and said, I'm not going to carry you out tonight. You need to drink water. And I remember being like, oh, my God, someone else knows. (laughs) Mm. Um, And probably he wasn't the only one, but I didn't actually know that there was a lot of other people that knew. I mean, my kids kind of knew that our life was changing, but... um, Anyway, that was that was a big thing. It scared me when my dad said those words to me. Um, so that later that summer, I went to my first twelve step meeting, and I looked it up online. And it was called a beginner meeting, and I went, and um, I felt like I was doing something really good for myself. And it's in this really beautiful part of St. Paul, a really lovely neighborhood. This particular meeting, and. I just remember sitting in the room and they had a huge scroll up on the wall with all the steps. And I was like frantically trying to memorize them. I wasn't even like listening to what anyone was saying because I was, I don't know if I thought they were going to quiz me or what. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like I couldn't remember them and they didn't even make sense. And I was like, I don't get what this is. Um, but as I sort of like sort of shut out the noise of the step reading scroll thing that I was looking at, and started listening to people talk, I just, it all resonated. It was like that me too thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And and then I left, and the only step I could remember was step one, which was probably appropriate. Um, but I also left thinking, like, I need to go back, but I don't really know how this fits with my life. Like, we drink all the time with our friends. How would I ever make this fit in my life? And so I went to that meeting and then I just went back home and drank. Like I just picked up for it. That was it. And I kept all of, they gave you like a little newcomer's kit and I kept it in my bedside drawer and every once in a while I would open stuff up and read it and look at it and think, yeah, I should probably think more about that or this. I knew in my heart that I needed to do something like that. I didn't know if that was it, but like I knew I had a problem. Right. And it was scary. Um, And so I went home and just kind of kept doing what I had been doing. And then that kept being more unmanageable. Like that's the way it gets. Um, Life kept being more overwhelming. Um, My job kept being more and more demanding. I think ironically, I was doing really well at work. Um, I think I was so afraid of screwing up because I, for me, I think when I, if I was hungover a lot or if I was stressed, it just, it made me work harder to make sure that it was on all the time. Um, and the result was that I was promoted a couple of times and then I had like more to do. Um, and we had teenage girls, right? I mean, teenagers bring their own, I love them to pieces, but it was a blended family of teenage girls. We had conflicts all the time, um, which don't get resolved very well when mom is crabby or tired or overwhelmed. Um, I had a lot of unresolved guilt from my divorce. I had a lot of grief. I just had kind of put that grief of my mom and other people in our family passing away up on a shelf when I met my husband. So that was kind of just lingering out there. Um, I missed her a lot. I felt like I was going through changes in my life that she wasn't a a part of. I felt like I needed her at times and I couldn't pick up the phone and call her. Um, I felt like I wasn't doing a good enough job in life, which just sort of was like a vicious part of like, you're not good enough, so you need to do more, and then I would do more, and then you just, for me, a lot of drinking at night, just because I was exhausted, 
And I often would wait until everything was done in my day. It was like wake up at five in the morning and put in this crazy day. And then when everybody was kind of like settled down to the night, I would open a bottle of wine or whatever it was. Um, So I think it went from, you know, drinking for those reasons that I mentioned earlier, ranging from like having fun with my husband to sort of being sad or, you know, there's so many reasons. And I think that's very telling too. It wasn't that I just drank because I was sad or that I just partied a lot. It was like, I just always drank too much, no matter what the reason was. Um, And so a couple of years later, um, things had really spiraled further and I found myself sitting on my deck in the Minnesota summer drinking wine and Googling things like, am I an alcoholic? And all those kinds of things that I think a lot of us do. And I tripped over a blog actually that was written by someone in, in my, someone that I went to high school with. Um, And she was sober and she had started a blog and I started reading it and it was a huge epiphany that someone else that like I knew might feel like me. Um, And I kept reading it and reading it and Although her drug of choice was different than mine, it didn't matter. It was like the whole story was so relatable. And I was really, really, really struggling. And I was feeling like I was living a fake life. Like people had no idea what I was doing at night. And I felt so much guilt and shame. And one day I just thought it was so much courage. I sent her a message and she messaged me back and she invited me to go to a 12-step meeting with her. And I went, um, And I was really ready at that point. Um, Some things had happened that summer. Um, This was in 2012. Um, I tried really hard to not drink before my daughter came back home from her freshman year of college. And I I didn't stop drinking, of course. (laughs) And she was really upset. And she actually chose to spend some time at her dad's house that summer. And I remember thinking like at any other point in my life, it would have devastated me that she was leaving and her sisters decided to spend that time with her at their dad's. I remember when they decided to go, it was like a huge weight off my shoulders because I knew I could take time that I needed to take care of me and that it was long overdue. Um, You know, it wasn't like I haven't been sober for six years. So that was not my, that was not my end. Um, By the end of the summer, I went to my first well, my second 12-step meeting, and that was the beginning of almost two years of sobriety, and it was pretty good. Um, Life got infinitely better. Um, I think by that point, you know, there was a little bit more chatter in my family about what's going on with Taylor. Is she okay? Um, None to my face, other than my kids being angry with me. Um, But you know, that was the beginning of nearly two years of sobriety and it it was a good period, but I didn't really do everything that they tell you to do. Like I never read a book. I didn't really work the steps. I did go to meetings really regularly. um, And that kept me sober for a long time. And um, just before my two year mark, I had a drink at a party and that marked like, a year and a half of relapse time. Um, And I should also say that I decided to go to treatment 
when I started going to those 12 step meetings um, that summer. So it was like August 30th that I went to that meeting and a couple of weeks and I was like, gosh, everybody's been to treatment. I wonder if I should go to treatment. And it wasn't like the first time I had thought about it. I live in Minnesota. Hazelden is right down the road. Um, in fact, that was kind of one of my jokes when I would feel overwhelmed. I wish someone would just check me into Hazelden. I could use a timeout. Um, I think that there was less humor in that than people realized. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did some checking around and I ended up going to an outpatient rehab program in the evenings. And so true to my overworking self, I worked all day, made dinner for my family and went to treatment from six to 9 PM. And it was really good for me, but it, I mean, if I were going to do it over again, I probably could have been a little bit gentler on myself. <laughs> uh, maybe wasn't quite as therapeutic as it should have been, although it was really good. I mean, I, I got a lot of out of it. And I, even though I did have that relapse period, I try not to beat myself up too much over that at this point in my life. I don't recommend relapses, but, um, and I didn't drink consistently through that year and a half. Like I always heard people say in meetings, if you have a drink, you'll pick up right where you left off. Well, I didn't, I had a drink and then I didn't drink again for like five months because it kind of scared me. And then we went out for my birthday and we went to a really fancy dinner and went to a hotel and I kind of let it rip. (laughs) And then I sort of drank through the holidays, but like kind of privately, never in front of the kids. Um, And I spent this year and a half kind of like binging in private, but like social, like my husband and I, or going out or, you know, we'd go away for a weekend or, or just at night when none of the kids were here. Um, so it wasn't like, and I remember thinking, well, I must not be an alcoholic because I didn't really pick up right where I left off. So there must be a way that I can figure out a way to manage this. And I spent that year and a half trying to drink normal and it was a very failed experiment. (laughs) Um, it ended up, I think in January of 2016, where I just, like, I knew I couldn't do it anymore. Um, and my husband and I were just talking about this recently. I said, remember I didn't quit earlier in the year because we were going to Vegas in March and I didn't want to go to Vegas sober. And so I just kind of kept periodically drinking that spring. But like most days I was reading recovery books and, um, you know, kind of like online resources. And like I was getting my head in the game, but I wasn't quite ready to totally quit drinking. And I didn't even know at that time that a lot of people do that. It's really normal. Um, kind of like, gearing yourself up to quit maybe um mm-hmm. and then and then may came and i i don't know like a switch flipped and i was like i can't do this anymore like i gotta stop right now i had a couple of pretty ugly episodes that really upset and scared my husband and um so on may 30th like that was it i actually made myself drink on may 29th it was awful and i was so happy to get up the next morning and just be like i'm not doing that anymore um, and I did go back to um, 12 step meetings. I it's, I have a women's group that I go to sometimes. I went to it very regularly in the first couple of years of sobriety. Obviously, didn't go when I was drinking on and off for that year and a half. And and I knew when I went back, like I wasn't going to be the person who kept you know quitting and coming back. And, That's not me. 
and that's what kept me away for a while. Like I knew when I went back, it was for real, you know, like I wasn't going to keep relapsing. That's just not who I am. Like, you know, I don't want to be that. And, and it was like this, just a line I drew in the sand for myself. Like you're either going to do this or you're not. And so I went back. But I also was really looking for, like, online resources because I was traveling a lot for my job. I was working a lot. I had a lot going on. And it was like, if I can't get there, I need something else. And so the first thing I found, I realized I had this podcast button on my iPhone. And I started <laughs> searching it. <laughs> and um, I found a recovery elevator. Um, so I listened to that for a while. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, there's got to be something, like, more with women out there somewhere. And then I found the bubble hour. And... Um, lots of hours walking my dog, listening to the bubble hour, Saturdays at my women's group, and things were just going really well. Um, and I was really grateful to realize that there was other options out there. Like I appreciated, you know, my 12-step meeting, but I needed to know that there was other stuff, there's other places to get that support and resources that I needed. And um that's how I tripped on the bubble hour. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you did. <laughs> yes, I am too. I am too. And then it just sort of evolved. One thing that I did do that I didn't do kind of in my first round is that I connected with someone. Um, I had never really had a hardcore sponsor before. Um, and I would just sit in the meeting and look around and be like, who could I tell my stuff to? Nope, 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 no. I don't know. And it really had nothing to do with them. It was really more about me, like, willing to be that vulnerable. And I finally talked to someone that I had known pretty much since the beginning of my days there and said, I think I need to, you know, do some step work. And I, I don't really know how. And I knew that her sponsor was like a really, you know, she's an old timer. And I knew that I would just get like traditional, good, but like good framework and good guidance. And I knew she worked a really good program and, and I knew she was sober, right? I mean, that's, not, that's kind of what they say, like, find someone who has what you want. And um, I knew she was in a good place. And so really the best thing I did in that program was get through the steps. And I don't go every week anymore. I just, I'm, I have other things that I'm doing right now. I do go sometimes, but I can't say enough about, like intense step work, particularly like the four and five. Um, and we can talk a little bit about kind of what I went through when I did that. It was, it was life, literally life altering for me. Um, and eventually, you know, all of the steps, um, just, I felt like I became really self-aware, so much more evolved. Um, I eventually have really learned to practice intense, rigorous self-care, um, self-improvement, you know, self-worth work that I've done, um, you know, in the last year I've mapped out personal and professional goals and I eventually resigned from a job that was just incredibly, like so much good experience, which is such a toxic place for me because it, it was a place where I could work as hard and as long as anybody wanted to, and that's not good for me. Um, and I have a new job that's just been an amazing piece of work-life balance. And I would not have gotten to those places, I don't think, in the last year if it were not for going through some of that really, you know, hard work. Um, 
I think the other thing worth noting in terms of just my recovery and kind of, you know, what, what was important during that time is that, and this is kind of me like all or nothing. Um, I decided that I was going to get sober and I was going to go get caught up on all of my doctor appointments, including, you know, a long overdue visit to my gastric bypass surgeon and my regular physical and one other specialist and get a new therapist and work the steps. And it was just like, talk about hardcore self-care and, and in the process of all of that did get connected with a really great therapist. And, and I continue to see her periodically like once or twice a month, you know, still, but I went like every week for a long time. And um, even when I was doing my step work with my sponsor, I, I actually brought some of it to therapy and like went through, you know, fifth step stuff with her. Um, My sponsor moved away and I keep in touch with her on a friendly basis and I don't have someone new and I kind of feel like I've, worked through what I needed to um, in that aspect. And I have my therapist and that's just kind of what works for me. Um, But having kind of that really holistic approach to getting my body in order and getting my mind in order and getting my kind of spiritual self in order and, you know, focusing on sleeping and drinking water and eating well and exercise. And that has been really important for me in my recovery. It wasn't, I mean, I'm sober today because I don't drink. Um, I have a great recovery today, I think, because I paid attention to all of those things. Um, So this spring, I got really itchy. And that's sort of like what brought me to writing you a while ago. I got really itchy. I was like, "Mm, I don't know if I can be like happy forever sober. Can I be? Is this the right life for me? And I I was like Googling, is it common to relapse at 18 months? (laughs) Like what is going on? Every time I get close to two years, I get kind of like, discontent in my sobriety and I don't know if there's like a fear of being able to be happy sober I don't know what it was initially but I identified eventually that I kind of mistook my own worry of what others might think of me being sober I had to step back and be like I am happy this is my best life I love my life the way it is um And I sort of keyed into, you know, I was always so worried about what everybody else thinks and realizing that I was, I was so afraid. What if people knew that I'm sober, they would think I'm like broken or there's something wrong with me. And um, I'm not, maybe I wouldn't be who they thought I was. And, and fearing that my husband was kind of unhappy. Okay. Knowing that he was kind of unhappy with what has unfolded. um, It's been hard for him. Um, It's, you know, that's one of the hardest parts about all of the story. Um, but realizing that it wasn't that I was discontent in my sobriety. It was that I hadn't really embraced like the joy that was available because I was so scared of what other people might think. And so I did a lot of journaling and extra therapy appointments and lots of listening and reading and all that kind of stuff. Um, You know, I have this long history of like overdoing and eating and working and loving and being busy and caring for others and um, all that kind of stuff. Alcohol became a thing that I overdid, but it didn't like make me a bad person. And I'm so proud of everything that I've accomplished in my recovery, it was weird that I was also very afraid of what other people might think of it. 
Um, and I couldn't really be mad at other people having kind of a, like I had a chip on my shoulder that uh, they probably would think I'm a loser if they knew that I was an alcoholic or, or if they knew that I choose to be alcohol free, they would think there's something wrong with me. Or I don't know. Or I, I remember someone saying like, Taylor identify she's not like an alcoholic right I mean she just like doesn't drink and I have I'm not a big label person but I was just constantly afraid of what others would think um so realizing or kind of coming to that place where I wasn't unhappy being sober that's not what it was about it was about what I was feeling was fear of what other people would think and And so I decided that I would just be more vocal about where I was at in my life instead of making it this secret. Um, And just sidebar, um, well, so I decided to write you, um, and I can talk more about why I had wanted to do that before and why it was better that I did it when I did. Um, And I also decided to share on my Facebook page and on my Instagram that I am sober and, like, share it in a really positive light because I can't be angry that other people might think negatively about sobriety and recovery if I'm afraid to tell them about it. Like that feeds the stigma. And so I work. I'm nodding while you say that. (laughs) Can you hear me? (laughs) It was like when I realized that, Gina was just like, oh my God, oh, I'm missing it. I'm not discontent in my recovery. I need to be like open about it. I need to just like, be able to show up in an authentic way and then thinking back to like when I was trying to live a really healthy life but I was like drinking and smoking at night that felt really disingenuous and that's kind of the way I had started to feel earlier this year and so I spent a long time kind of crafting this post that I um, put up on Facebook and I purposely made it public so even if someone's not friends with me like they could go to my Facebook page and see it Um, which kind of felt like could you pull it up and read it for us? I can. I can. Um, and then when I did that, I also decided that I would write to you. And I was, I remember I got up really early that morning. I did it right on my two-year anniversary. And I am pulling it up right now as I talk. And I kind of had it, like, you know, written out. And then I did this copy-paste and put it in my status and went for a run and came back. And, like, my Facebook notifications had blown up. Oh, and my God. Like, oh, my God. People are going to be like, oh, wow, you suck. <laughs> and, of course, that's not what anybody said. There was, like, 130 comments over the course of a couple of days of people just gushing about how happy they were for me and – how proud they were of me or how amazing they thought I was, or, I mean, it was just like this incredible outpouring of support. And I didn't do it for that reason. Like I wasn't trying to get a pat on the back for I can go get my token for that. Right. Um, but okay, so here it is. I'll just read it right now. Um, it says spoiler, spoiler alert. This is a long post with some deeply personal and important messages that, with hope and happiness to share. A few years back, I was struggling, and it began to weigh on me that I wasn't living a very authentic life. On the outside, I was a busy, overly so, professional working mom and wife with a busy blended family and social life, working feverishly to be as perfect as I could, which wasn't actually very perfect at all, by the way. I was compromising my priorities to hold it all together on the heels of a lot of grief and loss and transition of several major life events and a history of fearing that I might not be good enough 
my best coping strategy was another glass of wine. And as time went on, another bottle. I quietly, I was quietly drinking more than most people knew. And at the same time, I had a passion for health and wellness, which felt very incongruent to drinking excessively. Unfortunately for me and my family, we live in a society that glamorizes the use of alcohol to cope with stressors in life, and particularly so for women. Not to mention the prescribed way to have fun is to drink. On one hand, I felt completely validated in my choice to numb out the overwhelming feelings that life presented and drink like a sailor when it was time to socialize. And on the other hand, I hated, hated what I was doing to myself, and I felt like I wasn't living an authentic life and certainly wasn't taking good care of myself. I was not only disingenuous to everyone else, but more importantly, not authentic to myself. To help, to my surprise, when I gathered the courage to look for help, even my own healthcare, even my own healthcare providers didn't recognize the problem. I seemed like I was doing just fine in life. I realized I needed to be my own advocate. So I'll pause there. I went to two doctors and a different therapist that I had at that time and said, I think I have a drinking problem, and no one believed me. So there was that. <laughs> because you um, looked just fine to them, right? I was fine, yeah. Yeah. Um, so as I celebrate another year of sobriety today, May 30th, I hope to live an even more authentic life by sharing more of who I really am. Nothing in my life isn't better since my decision to abstain from alcohol and practice a life of healthy recovery. Holistically, everything is better. My health, physically, emotionally, spiritually, my wealth, my happiness, my relationships, my home, my family, my career. It did not come easily. Treatment, 12 steps, one relapse, lots of online resources, a new sober birthday. I'm so grateful for this way of life. If not for other women being willing to share their stories publicly, whether in blogs, podcasts, conferences, news, media, or recovery programs, I would not have had the courage to get help before things got worse, then I wouldn't be living the life that I have today. In fact, the use of technology as a way to access inspiration and resources moved me from a relapse back into recovery. My life is not actually perfect, but amazing when seen through the lens of gratitude, which is such a gift. By sharing my story, which I will continue to do in various platforms, I can pay forward that gift that I was given. There's so much stigma that surrounds alcoholism, addiction, sobriety, and recovery, which feeds the fear of seeking help. It requires courage and strength to own our stories and talk openly. Many women have had the courage to share their stories publicly, which gives hope to others. While some would say that such topics are meant for an anonymous setting, I believe that we run the risk of breeding shame and secrecy. It was embarrassing and scary to admit the problem and ask for help. If that shame can be diminished, then others, then it helps everyone. It has taken me personally some time to be able to shed that shame. I had kind of a chip on my shoulder about whether people might think of me, what people might think of me, and now I embrace all of the joy to be had in recovery, and I cannot be upset with others that they may have a negative perception of women in recovery if I don't have the courage to show up in an authentic way and share with others what this really looks like. So I'm, in, I'm compelled to put my leadership skills to work by sharing my story and maybe helping conquer some of the stigma, which in turn may reach other women who need to know about this. Tip of the day, we need to be a little gentler with ourselves, love and accept ourselves, flaws and all, and maybe most importantly, prioritize our own self-care. If you or anyone you know is struggling and there's help, there's a better way. There are many ways to get there. There's not only one. PM me if you'd like to. For those of you who have inspired me and supported me in my journey, thank you. I'm grateful every day. Peace and love and joy. And Wow, that, that is amazing. <laughs> That's an amazing post. No wonder you got 140 responses. It was, it, you know, I just was like a weight was lifted. 
And I have a new job and a couple of people that I work with were like, can we, can we be connected on Facebook? And I could like, at first I could like feel the hairs on my back stand up for a second. And I was like, sure, that's fine. And I just thought, whatever, like, I don't know. They can like, like me or not like me. It doesn't really matter. I don't think it's going to change their opinion actually. Um, And if it does, then so be it. Um, A couple of other, I was, I had a promotion recently in my new job and a couple of other managers were like, can we, do you mind if we connect on social media? And I just like, didn't really skip a beat. I was like, sure, that's fine. Um, I don't know if they've like dug back far enough in my Facebook post to look, but it's like, I'm okay. You know, like I'm comfortable in my own skin and every once in a while I'll be like, Oh, I wonder what someone thinks or, but I don't really think it matters. I think that we think it matters more than everybody else does. You know, I don't. I'm not exactly sure when it happened for me, but at some point, I I stopped feeling ashamed of it and started to realize that on the rare occasion when I did talk about it, you know, with sort of um, acquaintances or professional connections, I really got a lot of respect. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, and I don't think it was just lip service or titillation or anything. I really felt like. You know, they respected I'm living a disciplined life and and fixed a problem and should be proud of that. I I really I can't say I've really had any super negative things. I guess maybe the negative things are what people say, the kind of people who are more gossipy. And I mean, they're gonna talk about your I don't know hairdo or they're gonna find something to talk about if if um, if right. it wasn't that. So I mean, because that's just kind of negativity that exists so that's amazing that you did that I love it thank you yeah you know it was it was for me I you know I'm not afraid to say there was like some selfishness there I needed to just like get that out there and um get that weight off of my shoulders I know maybe it's because I do care sometimes too much what other people think but it was like sort of a therapeutic step in the process of being able to not care so much. I don't know. Um, but it was also kind of an act of service. Like every time another woman says me too, right. It gives, I mean, I got several messages from people that said that they were really like private messages. Oh my gosh, I'm so inspired. I can't believe it. I'm really struggling. I had one person contact me and see if we could have coffee. I mean, it was really, I felt so just like my heart was warmed that it was. I knew it was the right thing to do. I guess that's all I can say. That's amazing. What was your daughter's response? So, I my daughter is almost twenty six now, and I happened to be at her house one day, and she's a mom now. She has two little boys, and so my grandma and Gigi, and my stepdaughter has a little girl. So we we have a different phase happening. But I was there one day, and I said. I said, did you see my Facebook post? And she's like, no, I'm kind of taking a social media break, which by the way, like, oh my God, I'm so proud of you, girl. Um, (laughs) But I read it to her and she was like, oh, good job, mom. That's cool. And she didn't really like skip a beat. And then she came back to it later and she was like, do other people not know that you're sober? And I said, (laughs) no. And she was like, I think it's interesting that for them, it's just like, they're so glad that I have, I think that they seem glad that I have this great life. And and by great, I just mean like normal and happy and healthy and kind of quiet. And um, it hadn't occurred to her, <laughs> people don't know, or that I had kind of been like, you know, sitting on this and it was potentially a source of anxiety for me, you know. 
Um, so I, I just thought that was interesting that through all of, you know, the last few years, she was like, I had no idea that like the general population of all of the people in your life didn't know that you're sober. So, you know, yeah, it's funny it felt like you say a big that deal. because I just did an interview. So last week's interview was with um, Kathy Tonbaugh, who does coaching for parents of children who have addiction. And we talked about the way that parents sometimes feel more shame about their children's addiction than the children do because they have grown up with this live out life, live out loud mentality where mm-hmm. everything is is shared on social media and on, in a lot of ways <clears throat> it can be really healthy. I mean, here we are, you know, we're we're trying to pioneer this era of like let's break the shame and stigma of recovery and right. It's working, <laughs> and right, it's going to be exactly. the next generation that's going to just feel that as normalized because, um, you know, we might have we might have like cracked it open, but they're the ones that are living out loud and and they're don't you find that just they're um, so eye opening to see their perspective of like oh well why why wouldn't you tell people that why like, wouldn't why would... you yeah so I actually <laughs> sent like a group message to a, we have like a little family text and I said text thread and I just sent a message out one night and it said quick question for everybody you know how would you feel if like my sobriety were more publicized um, because I've talked about having a blog and so that was like kind of another thing that I've been sort of toying around with this year and they all were just like yeah that's fine I mean it was just like the most benign question and answer yeah. <laughs> didn't, like it's fine with them and then I went back to my 16-year-old, and I was like, are you sure? Like, if you were on Instagram and you saw something from me, so we have a kind of a deal. I can follow her, but I can't like her things because she doesn't want her mom to like her stuff. But um, <laughs> she was like, I don't care, really, what you put on social media. I mean, I think they would have cared when I was drinking if I did something that was embarrassing. But that's the beautiful thing about it is that they don't view it as embarrassing. I, I guess that's the best part about it is – as much fear that I have that someone might see me in a negative light when I broached the subject with them, they were like, it's fine. Yeah. Almost like I didn't know why you're asking. That's a silly question, mom. Does your accountability to your daughters feed into your motivation to, to maintain your sobriety now? It does. It does. Um, I think particularly for my 16 year old who was younger, you know, when I first got sober and then was the only one living at home when I went through that relapse and she didn't see me drink a lot. But when she did, when she did see me drink, her reaction was to like not want to be home Mm -hmm. or to be very upset by it. Even if it, even if nothing bad happened, which it really didn't. um, But the bad thing for her was like, she knew that I really didn't belong drinking you know yeah and so she liked you better sober I bet yes absolutely yep Mm -hmm. and it's important to me to show up as a good mom um yeah and and it's important to me to show up as a good Gigi right you know we have these little people in our life and yeah um we had a really cool thing that we that I got we got this summer I've always wanted to have an in-ground pool in our backyard so I'm looking at the water in my backyard off of my deck right now we put a pool in really a big deal I've always wanted this but as it was unfolding I was like I'm so glad this didn't happen any sooner than it did 
how would I ever have managed all those kids in a pool when I was drinking at night? Um, And if I were still drinking, how would I make sure, like, if we have the grandkids overnight and if they, like, woke up in the night and I were drinking, you know what I mean? It's just, like, all those fear things go through your mind. Um, I'm not worried. Like, I can keep everyone safe here. (laughs) Um, It's there, and I get to show up and not have to worry about anything safety-wise. So, I don't know if that makes any sense, but just like that, oh, my God, oh, it absolutely I out does. and I, you know, someone's like in the pool, I don't know about it, or now I'm just, I'm, I'm 120% present for everyone, and, and that's the way I like to be. Um, maybe the harder part for my youngest daughter is that I probably have different boundaries now than I used to, mm-hmm. so I say no easier than I used to. Um, <laughs> that's annoying for a 16 year old right but, <laughs> but, but I think he, her sisters wouldn't say that she gets hears more no's but you know I when she has an ask I have to I don't say yes right away or if anybody has an ask you know I have to check and see where I'm at like in my life with me what I need for me um, self-care has been a huge part of my recovery um I can go back to like my late teens until I was in my early forties. And I mean, self-care was like, it was so negligent. It's gross. Right. I mean, I was so worried about taking care of other people and I don't know if other people could see that. I mean, I I got my hair done and I got my nails done and I was like dressed well and like that part, you know, but I'm talking about real self-care, you know, being able to say no, being able to like take care of your soul. Right. There's sort of a difference between maintenance of the outside stuff and the self-care of the inside stuff. And you're right. Like if, you know, if we're going for nails, hair, massages, I'm like, you look good on the outside and even your doctor was fooled by that. And, um, and, and I think a lot of us fool ourselves by that. Yep. But I have a couple questions that I jotted down while you were talking. And yeah, go ahead. One question that I really am curious about was, was it hard to go back to 12-step meetings after your relapse? Did you feel like you were eating crow? Was it? Did you feel shame or dread? How did that feel? Um, so... it's a great meeting that I go to. I just have to preface it with that. And I think that, you know, sometimes it takes a little shopping around to find the right one. If you choose that as a part of your recovery, I knew that when I went back that I would just be met with open arms. It's a women's meeting. There's a lot of years of sobriety in the meeting. I knew that I would be met with open arms. I've seen it happen to other people, but I didn't go back until I knew I was committed because I was just, for me, I didn't want to have to keep going through that process. Like I wouldn't let myself do that. So it was exactly the way I thought it would be. I think, um, I mean, I walked in and it was most of the same faces and a few new ones. And I just got a lot of hugs and yeah. people were just like, I'm so, so good to see you back and stuff like that. So it wasn't hard actually. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I knew that would be your answer, but I wanted to <laughs> explore that yeah. with you. And you talked about the importance of particularly step four and five, and not all of our listeners are familiar with the steps. So could I just ask you to explain a little bit about what those steps are and why they help? Sure. Um, so in a 12-step program, um, you oh could gosh, have memorized it. them now. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> so your fourth step is, um, 
it's like an inventory of yourself. And I think, you know, one of the criticisms, of, criticisms, criticisms, of course, of AA is like being focused on your flaws and your shortcomings and things like that. Um, so step four says made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And I actually, in a good old perfectionist way, did lots of Google research and found some templates and tools and made sure that it was like the most thorough fourth step that anyone on the planet has ever completed. And it took me a long time. Um, I actually and I want you to decode my... that for me a little bit because the, it, AA almost has its own language. Yeah, like so it's, it's kind of an language. antiquated language. Yeah. So, um, it is. And so a searching it was, moral think... inventory. What does that? Yeah. What does that mean? So I think in 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 AA, you know, they're talking about um, a moral your character defects. Like, you know, where where were your shortcomings? Where where do your resentments lie? Um, it's really kind of a process of like uncovering your resentments. Like what part did you play in this? Who do you owe amends to? Like who do you need to get straight with? Um, but that fearless moral inventory, I really kind of dug into that. Um, and I, I got into like, who do I have resentments towards? What was my part in it? And for me, and the fifth step, just to kind of skip ahead for a second, is is sharing the results of this moral inventory, which sounds like such a daunting, ugly thing. But um, and I wish right now I could remember the website that I use where I found this great tool because it kind of decoded things a little bit better than I probably can right this second on off the cuff. Um, but it just walked through. Um, it was a it was a chronological experience for me, and I really went back like on my whole life and thought about who who upset me, who hurt me, and then looked at like what my part was in that, um, where that might have been about that person, what my part was in it. Sometimes it wasn't about me at all, and I just needed to like let it go and say it out loud. Um, a lot of it was getting through some not very not very proud moments of my own life on paper and and then being able to like talk through them with another person and it really forces or it forced me anyway to look at my behavior when I was drinking in particular um but I think more importantly for me and this is maybe like not the point of AA's program but like I got into a lot of old stuff that had nothing to do with my drinking indiscretions um and I was able to just like work through a lot of old junk that I think became very therapeutic for me um so that searching and fearless moral inventory is intended to be about things that are related to your drinking um and things you know that may have happened along the way and people you may have harmed or um or addressing resentments that you have and, and identifying what your part is in that and kind of what your own character flaw is that causes that behavior, which is good and healthy. And I did a lot of that, but I think that I got into, well, I know that I got into even like a couple of layers deeper and a few chapters back before the drinking started. And that's why I'm able to really identify you know, food and am I good enough and working too much and um, things like that as recurring 
themes in my life that may or may not at various times have included alcohol. I I kind of went off track there, but... (laughs) No, not at all. I think that's so important, and I think that is what recovery is all about because it's like where did our thinking get off track, and is that even true? Like you talked earlier about being so hard on yourself and having exaggerated ideals for yourself, and even though that may not have technically connected to your drinking, it kind of does. And where did you get that message? And, you know, why, you know, just sort of backing up and undoing our thinking, you know, and re- backing up, moving forward, backing up, and always asking, is that true? Is that true? You know, is that yep. true? Do I have to be perfect? Is that true? Are people going to judge me? Is that true? And and realizing that so we just have to not. keep tinkering. <laughs> and then so, so um, and I have to say, like, I, um, before I got sober, I remember the show My Name is Earl was quite popular. Yes. And my kids were at the age where they really thought that was a funny show. But I sort of thought that's what AA was, was like you make a list of all the people you've screwed over and then you go fix it. That's a good thing, sorry. Yeah, and I was like, well, I didn't hurt anybody. I just sat alone and drank wine every night, Mm -hmm. so I really don't have a list to work on. But then, as you say, when I sort of got the idea of like, well, what about your resentments? And I was like, oh, I have resentments. (laughs) Yeah, my list was hefty. <laughs> because people deserve them. Clearly. <laughs> Clearly. And then to, to, to say, what was my role in that was like, wait, what? <laughs> right. Uh, it's really intense. So one of the things that I did, and I would like highly recommend these kinds of things for people, but when I finally finished my fourth step, and it required like hours and hours and hours of time alone working through things, um, and then I, I had read somewhere that like writing it is more therapeutic than typing it. Like the process of like handwriting things kind of gets it out, so to speak, um, mm-hmm. more effectively. And so I did that and then I got done and I remember being so, just kind of like, again, the weight lift, like, oh, I think this is it. I think it's all here. And I was like sifting through all the pages and pages and pages and I was home alone and I have this huge mirror in our master bedroom. And I was like, well, before I do my fifth step, I think I'm just going to read this all to myself. And I sat in front of the mirror and I started with page one. And by the time I was done, I was just sobbing. Um, but I don't know if I've ever felt like so, maybe my Facebook post this spring was like a close second. It was incredibly, incredibly therapeutic. And then I went through it with my sponsor, and then I went through it with my therapist. I lost 20 pounds and quit my job within six months of doing all that. Wow. I mean, talk about being able to make some really incredible choices that were good for me. And, and the ability to start, like, creating boundaries and truly do things that were healthy and right for myself, um, I never would have imagined the result of going into that exercise So let me dig into that a little bit more, Taylor, because so step four is is working through that inventory. And it should be said, a lot of people do that step four, you know, every few years they go back because Mm -hmm. the more we learn about ourselves. So it's not something that's like one and done. It's like an ongoing process. And then step five is reading that out loud to another person. Is that right? Correct. Yep. Yes. So I can't remember the way it's exactly worded, but it is that. Yes. So it's sharing it with somebody who you trust. Mm-hmm. And why does that help? 
or how um, does that I mean, I'm not going to be an AA advocate today. I'm just going to say that for me, um, I'm a really strong proponent of talk therapy. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's just incredibly, it's incredibly therapeutic. I think it's very important. I think it really, it just helps to release um, what you're holding in. And I think in that, in the spirit of the 12 step program, that fifth step, you have to be accountable, um, first of all. So you're having to take some accountability for your part and all of those things. And you have to say it out loud to someone. But I think, I mean, for me, the more, the equally, shouldn't say more, equally important part was just being able to release it mm-hmm. and let it go. And, and then you can move on. Um, Did it take some of the power of the shame and secrets away to share them, to realize that the world kept turning even after you said them out loud? It did. And so here's the interesting thing is that as I started saying things out loud, um, when I wrote them, they felt very valid. My resentments felt very valid. My Everything that I wrote was like, yep, mm-hmm, and this is what I did, and this is what they did, and this is how I felt, and this is why I feel this way. <laughs> and then you say them out loud, and um, they start to sound not so, not so bad. They start to feel not so bad. Um, mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the things that you thought that you did that were so horrible are, in many cases, rather benign. And, and when they're not, like you said, the world doesn't stop spinning. They're forgivable, and you get to talk about it and move on. Um, and I think, you know, as you work through the steps in terms of, like, you know, being ready to kind of let go of those things, I mean, that's kind of how the process works. You say them, and then you're able to just let them go and know that, oh, well, that wasn't so bad. And, and saying them to two different people, um, a person, you know, in the program and then my therapist, I mean, they just like their the look on their face didn't change. So they're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I was like, yeah, like, how about that? <laughs> I you've never heard that before. <laughs> um, and it was fine. And, you know, I don't have anything too dishy, I suppose. But to now I can say that now at the time, it was like, you know, and then my daughter needed poster board and I couldn't go. And they were like, uh-huh. <laughs> and that really is a true story. Like my daughter really needed poster board and I had been taking <laughs> her and it felt terrible. Um, yeah. And there were numerous events that happened like that. But it was those kinds of things that I felt so much guilt and shame over. I think the other interesting part is that like I went through that process of talking about some of these things with certain people and, you know, that, that 12 step, you know, making amends. And one of the things that was like just, I just was so ashamed of, and I was talking to my oldest daughter about it and she started laughing. I said, what? And she said, I, I don't remember. Um, right. And I said, no, remember I said, and I picked you up from work and I'm like explaining the whole story. And she just shook her head and she was like, I don't. And I said, remember, and I brought you to your friend's so-and-so's house, and she was shaking her head, no. <laughs> it, it has been weighing on me for like 10 years, and I kind of joked with her. I was like, are you kidding me? I've been carrying this for a long time. You could have told me that you weren't mad about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which is not to so say like, oh, I guess you can like get too drunk to go buy a poster board or whatever thing. Like, It's not as though it's saying like, oh, that's fine, go do that. It's not okay. It's, Nope. It's saying, like, let that go. Like, that's in yep. the past. Let's get you healthy again. Quit dragging that old garbage with you because it's not 
helping you get better. And it's actually, it kind of empowers addiction because it uses that old stuff to, to say like, see, you're bad, see, you're, you know, it weakens Mm -hmm. us and it Mm -hmm. makes us more vulnerable to, to it, even though we sort of feel like we're motivating ourselves by shame. But in fact, it's like completely the opposite of what we think. Right. So awesome. Well, we have talked for a whole hour already, and I could talk for another hour, but it is the bubble hour. So, understood. (laughs) So, I have loved hearing your story, and you're so insightful. Before I let you go, I just, you know, I know your heart is for helping other people. So, before you go, I just wonder if you just have some words of encouragement for our listeners today. If there's anybody who's struggling or coming up on a on an anniversary or a milestone and feeling like maybe they're going to be feeling a little bit of wobbliness just mm-hmm. what's your words of encouragement for, for oh gosh today? you know I think um number one there isn't one right way um I think that's really important I remember one of the first women that I met in a 12-step meeting told me that um, my husband and I were going to get divorced um within a year because he was still drinking socially um, and I kind of was like really waiting for the other shoe to drop at times, um, you know, and, and t- what I mean by that is sometimes there's an idea that, you know, these are the rules, this is the structure, this is the way you have to follow it like this or you're going to fail and it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And the reality is there's a lot of different modalities of recovery and find what works for you and find what resonates with you. And it might be kind of a mix of things, Um so, you know, number one, there's no right way. There's a way that works for you. Um, you know, for me, I, my whole life didn't have to fall apart. Sometimes it felt like it was. But when you know that it's time, you know, that's when it's time to take a step. Um, you know, when you're feeling wobbly, that's the time to reach out. It's not the time to isolate. Um, online resources, I, you know, I don't know if it's appropriate to share what they are here, but you know, I, I follow, she recovers in the bubble hour and some other things online. Um, those are great places to know that you're not alone. And so often we feel like no one, no one else is like me or no one else feels like this, or I'm, you're so ashamed because no one else is as bad as you or whatever. Um, so those resources are available and I think they're great. Um, and I think just finding the joy, you know, life is fun and great and wonderful like this. I, nothing, this is what I always say every time I get a chip, nothing isn't better sober. Right. Yeah. So, I don't know. I could probably give lots of advice, but (laughs) people tell me I give too much advice, so I'll leave it at that. Well, no, you, that, those are, those are great parting words, and I really appreciate all your openness and honesty and everything you've shared with us. So thank you so much for being on today and for for sharing your story. I've loved it. And listeners, if um, if there's something special in Taylor's story that's touched your heart or you just want to express your gratitude or give Taylor some feedback, feel free to email it to me, thebubblehour at gmail.com. Let me know you'd like me to send it on to Taylor, and I'll make sure that she gets your message. So that's it for us for today, everyone. Thanks so much, Taylor, for being here. Thanks, listeners, for listening. Everybody, uh, I'm grateful to all of you as well. So until next time, take good care. I own it. I didn't. Not proud that that was me. And when I say.
I'm proud. 